As we go to open God's Word together, let's ask Him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Make us to know Your ways, O Lord, and teach us Your paths. Lead us in Your truth and teach us, for You are the God of our salvation. Lord, You are good and upright, therefore You instruct sinners in the way. You lead the humble in what is right and teach the humble His way. So we pray that You would instruct and lead and teach us now by Your Spirit through Your Word so that we may see Jesus and hear us, for we pray in His name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's Word to the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 1. Song of Solomon is on page 713 of many of our pew Bibles between the books of Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. So if you get to Isaiah, you've gone too far in the Old Testament, and so we want to read the Song of Solomon, and we want to read the first four verses together and consider those this evening. So Song of Solomon, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Hear now the word of God. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, We were supposed to consider this passage together last week, Sunday night, uh, but you remember we had an incident, if you're visiting with us, last week after our morning service during Sunday school, a drunk driver hit the power pole outside of our building and completely knocked out our power here, Um, and so they had to work on the line, so we had to cancel our evening service last week, and we were scheduled to think about this passage And so then I had to sort of think, is this a good passage for us to consider on uh, the evening of Easter Sunday? And I hope we can make the case as we go on that that it is good. And sometimes the best laid plans that we lay down, the Lord knows differently. Rightly did James tell us, we always ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do thus and such. So if the Lord wills, we were going to consider this last week. And he didn't will it, so he wills that we consider it this evening. Um, and we want to think about this, the longing of the beloved, um, be, and we've been, con- we've been getting our consideration of this to kind of give ourselves an introduction to say that this is wisdom literature, and particularly wisdom literature about how to love, um, and that it's wisdom that's particularly necessary in our day, um, as so many of the things and so many of the ideas about our world, about how to love, are so badly wrong. Uh, We need the wisdom of God's Word to speak into these things and to listen uh, to what it celebrates. And so we want to make a few more introductory comments as we come to the text and help us again to think about how we are to regard this book of the Bible that's maybe uh, difficult for many of us. Um, I I happened to run into a professor at Westminster uh, this week while I was working on sermons, and he said, what are you preaching on? And I said, well, we're going to start, we've started a series on Song of Solomon And he said, well, I confess that that's never my favorite book to go through. Um, So I thought, if it's not your favorite, we're in good company. But I think sometimes we don't go through it because we don't know what to make of it. Um, It's difficult for us. It's poetry. It's wisdom literature. It can be difficult. So we want to make sure we have a kind of sense of what we are to do with this. And I think if we remember that this is wisdom literature, and particularly wisdom literature for how to love, 
it shows us what God means us to make, how God means us to make use of this book. Um, one really interesting comment I came across in studying this book was someone who said, you always have to remember that wisdom literature is always composed of beams and bombs. And I thought, what on earth does that mean? That it's always beams and bombs. Um, And the person said, you know, it's beams because you need the right kind of beams to properly construct an understanding of the world. That wisdom literature, in a sense, shows us how to build a right understanding of this world. And wisdom literature often provides us the beams for that building. So we have the proper supports, the proper structure in mind as we navigate life. So the beams of wisdom literature are for building, like the beams that run through a building. So if those are what the beams are for, then what are the bombs for? Well, the bombs are for blowing up the buildings that other people are building that have nothing to do with the fear of the Lord or the wisdom of God. Uh, That wisdom literature, in a sense, can help us explode the ideas that are current in the world that have nothing to do with the fear of the Lord or the wisdom of our God. Um, And those things are legion. I probably don't have to give you too many examples of how these things work, but I'm always struck that after we considered Proverbs and now as we move into Song of Solomon, how often our world would say, you know, leave young people to decide their own way in the world. Uh, The best thing you can do for them is just sort of leave them free to find their own way. And the wisdom of Proverbs says the exact opposite. That if you leave young people free to find their own way, they'll become fools on their own. They need help. They need guidance. They need wisdom. I think former generations understood that. Um, I don't think you could have told my grandfather, just leave me to find my own way. You say, you couldn't let me find it for you, you know. We, we need that kind of help. So wisdom helps us to blow up those ideas uh, that are current but are just wrong, that have nothing to do with the wisdom of God. And we need that for all aspects of life. But how much does our culture need that, particularly when it comes to ideas of who to love and how to love? Uh, don't we need the wisdom of God's word to speak into that? And we see that here. Um, It serves as the beams and the bombs, uh, the way to construct a a worldview that's that's properly based on the fear of the Lord and a way to tear down uh, the strongholds that the devil is trying to build. Um, That's the sense in which we mean they are bombs, the sense in which Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. God's word is a powerful tool for building, and it's a powerful tool for demolition uh, when it comes to things that are not in keeping. And that's what we want to do as we consider this book, to think about how it provides us beams and bombs for how to think about life in this world. Um, We need to make sure that we are laying a truly biblical foundation in the way that we think about love and marriage. Um, And this is not just necessary because of what's happening in the world. We all are aware, I think, of what's going on in the world. But Christians also need to be aware that that we need to think about these things properly, right? There was a time in Christian circles where where Christianity would say celibacy is the highest ideal of life Um, and that 
you know, God allows you to be married if you can't live up to that high ideal of celibacy because after all, where else do nuns and monks and future priests come from? Um, so a family is kind of a necessary evil, but celibacy is the really high thing. Well, that was absolutely wrong. Um, that was not what God's word teaches. But we've also gone the other way where you can have so-called Christian counselors giving advice about premarital relationships that sound a little different than the world's advice, telling people that they ought to live together to gauge their own, you know, compatibility before they get married, um, stuff that also has nothing to do with the Lord. So we need this wisdom. We need wisdom regarding love and marriage and to help us have a proper appreciation for all the good gifts that God gives us. Uh, Marriage and everything that goes with it is a gift that God has given us. Um, and all things that God has made are good. Like how one person put it, all things ordained by God are pure in themselves and are to be received with thanksgiving. And certainly this aspect of human relationships is created by God and is good on that account. And so we want to think about this book and how it teaches us these things. I prepared a little handout sort of on the structure of the book, and maybe this will be helpful as we move on. Uh, but the book has a unity. The book has a central focus as it moves on, around which all of its other themes uh, revolve. And I think that's a helpful way for us to think about it. And what is, the, what is the unity around which this book revolves? It's the desire of the husband for his wife and of the wife for her husband. Um, that desire one for another is the theme, the unity on which the book revolves. We're going to see that, that those aspects of desire coming up again and again. Desire stirred, desire frustrated, desire satisfied, desire frustrated again, but above all, desire. That's that's really what this book is about, extolling love, the love that the husband has for the wife and and the love that the wife has for her husband. And so what is going to be the center of this book then in this relationship of of desiring and loving one another? Well, at the center is going to be their marriage um, and the consummation of the marriage, that, that picture of those two coming together and being one flesh. It's, it's a picture of the intimacy that God has created to exist in marriage. So we shouldn't really be surprised that in a book about how to love, marriage is at the center. Uh, the actual marriage of the couple is there. And so the song will revolve around that. It will center on that. That'll be the main theme. And some some of these things that it talks about will be how they relate to each other before they're married. Uh, Some of it will be how they relate to one another after they're married. Um, But the book is not a chronology. It's it's revolving around this theme. And I think maybe that's also why we can sometimes have difficulty understanding what's going on in this book. Because we we tend to read books as a, a linear thing, right? A happens, then B happens, then C happens. We're used to kind of reading a book that way. This is poetry. This is poetry that revolves around and reflects on the different aspects of relationships. Um, That's one way it makes this wisdom unlike the wisdom of the world. Uh, One commentator said, you know, unlike Hollywood, this actual love story focuses on what happens after marriage, what happens after the couple comes together. It doesn't just leave this sort of happily ever after uh, to, be, to be thought about it, it kind of gets into how those kinds of ideas still continue. Um, and so that will be the center of the book, and, and it continues to revolve around that theme, um, that idea that this is what unites this, 
this book, this desire for husband for his wife and the wife for her husband. And, and finally, we want to say something about the characters in this song as we begin. Uh, that's why the ESV is a very helpful translation when it comes to the Song of Solomon, because you notice how the ESV puts in who's speaking. Um, if you read Hebrew, it would be clear to you who's speaking. Um, you have to read Hebrew better than I do for it to be clear. But if you read Hebrew, be clear, this is a male voice speaking. Now this is a woman's voice speaking. Um, it's clear who's speaking. Uh, this is a book of the Bible where the woman's voice actually speaks the most of all what's said in this book. But you see how we're told right at the beginning, she speaks in verse 2. And that others speak at the end of verse 4. Um, there's going to be this, this echoing of characters in the book. Um, and so even if you don't like the ESV, make sure you have a translation of the Bible that helps you do this. Otherwise, you're never sure who's talking. And it's interesting for the commentators how they, how they like to describe these voices. Sometimes it's, it's the king and his bride. Sometimes it's just he and she as it's here. Uh, sometimes they do the, the soprano and the tenor, uh, which is an interesting way of thinking about it as well. But what it helps to do is to say who's, who's singing in this song, who's singing to whom, whose voice is whose. Um, it's a husband and a wife. Uh, maybe the, the ESV is wise to leave it as he or she because they're different relationships to each other as the book goes on. At times they're, they're fiancés, at times they're husband and wife. And so maybe just leaving it like this helps us to, to leave it flexible for the relationships that exist in the book. Um, but I think a really helpful way to think of them as even when they're not married yet, they are betrothed to one another. Uh, now that's an old-fashioned word. Um, we, we heard some old-fashioned words in my prayer this evening, and that's because I took the prayer from 1563, so it was an old-fashioned prayer to begin with. Um, betrothed, we kind of think of as an old-fashioned word. It's not really a category we have today. Uh, couples get engaged, but an engagement can be relatively easily broken off. Um, in, their, in the day of this poem, betrothal was more of an engagement and not quite yet a marriage. But it was a much more serious thing um, to contemplate, a much more certain thing of leading to marriage, and to break it was a much more serious thing. Uh, maybe we're, we're all probably pretty familiar with the story of uh, Mary and Joseph. When Mary is pregnant as a virgin, um, Joseph makes up his mind to divorce her quietly. Uh, they're not married yet, but really to break off that betrothal, Joseph would have to go through a formal act of divorcing her. Now, why is that detail important as we go forward? It's because as they think about each other, even before they're married, it's with that certainty of marriage in mind that they are moving towards that reality and they think of one another in that light. Um, and so even when they are not married and talking about how they feel about each other, it's always with that idea that they will be married. Um, that, that that coming together before the Lord is going to happen, that their future together is sure. And that's why they can be so expressive about their love and their hopes uh, for the future. And this is a good reminder for us, especially for our young people, uh, that the less certain you are about the future with somebody, the more careful you need to be about allowing relationships to become more intimate and particularly physical. We have, to, we have to guard the sanctity of marriage, 
so that we have no regrets later if the relationship should come to an end. Um, I remember my father saying he was talking to an older minister once about difficulties ministering to people in the congregation who had fallen in love with somebody and and wanted to go marry someone that was not going to be a good fit for them as a Christian. And this pastor was lamenting these kinds of things with my father. And the pastor said, you know, in in the course of my ministry, I've fought many battles with Cupid, and I've lost them all. Um, It's a serious thing to give your heart away. Um, It's a serious thing to be committed, and that shouldn't be done if the future is not sure. These characters are sure about their future together. They're committed to a future together. Uh, This is more than just a dalliance. They are betrothed. They are intending to make a future together. Um, And these characters are also generic enough that God's people can put themselves into this story. It's not just a love story about someone else. It's sort of like the way the Psalms talk about suffering in a general sense, so that any, any of God's people in their sufferings can find themselves in the psalm. Likewise, this song is meant so that husbands and wives can find themselves in this song uh, to, help see, to help us see uh, the glories of what God has done in the creating this relationship uh, for our good and for His glory. Um, And so all of these things should be interesting to us and exciting to us as we come to this book and as we try to make sense of it. Um, And so these things all should be in our mind, and we'll try to continue to try to help to hold these things together as we go along and consider this. But really, these first few verses dive right into the longing of the beloved for her husband-to-be. The Song of Solomon doesn't waste any time, right? It dives right in. This is the song, and then it... It launches off. Um, you know, some songs, they have a, a nice little prelude that leads in before the big movement starts. This just starts with the big movement right up front. Um, the desire of the beloved for her, her husband to be. Um, and the first thing we'll notice as we go along is that at this time they are separated. Um, one of the things that the song is going to continue to do is to extol the beauties of marriage but deal with it in the realities of this fallen world. Um, it's a desire she has for her husband to be, but he's not around. They are separated at this time. Um, they, are, they are not together. And she is, that's going to become clear as we go on, but she's meditating on this one that she loves who is not here. And immediately she wants to make this known to bring us into how she loves him um, and to express these, these senses of love in all kinds of beautiful ways. Notice the descriptions in verses 2 and 3 appeal to all the senses. Uh, there's immediately a desire for kisses and love, right? That, that, that touch. Uh, these are kisses on the mouth, so we know these are kisses of a romantic nature that she's talking about here. Uh, she longs to be with him, to love him, to be enjoying that intimacy with him. Um, the desire for him. Love probably here does mean lovemaking, longing even for that aspect of the relationship when they get married. Uh, She's looking forward to that future. She's looking forward to that intimacy. And so right out of the gate, the Lord is reminding us the things he has created are not evils in and of themselves. They are good things, right? Her desire for her spouse in this way is a right desire, 
it's not something to be ashamed of. It's actually something to be celebrated. Right? It's a rightly ordered desire. This text is not saying that they've done anything inappropriate before marriage. But even as they anticipate that coming together, as they're separated, they can look on that with longing. Uh, look on that desire, that, that, that intimacy that they will enjoy as a good thing. That she longs for him in that sense. The things that God has created are good. And certainly marriage isn't just kisses on the mouth, right, as she's putting it here. But it's an aspect of it that she celebrates, that she desires uh, to be with him. And it, it launches in and we're sort of overwhelmed by it right away. And in the language of poetry that's used here, it's a kind of breathless piling on of language, um, which is meant to kind of bring us into the fact that the desire she has for him, as she, even as she expresses it this way in longing, still doesn't really quite do justice to it all. Um, she, she's piling it on in a way that she's describing it to us, but that leaves us with this sense that we really can't totally enter into that thing that is private between her and the one she loves. It's really beautifully done in this poetic expression of her love. Um, she compares it to wine, right? It's rich, it's fulfilling, it's intoxicating. All of that is there, uh, the touch and the taste, but also the smell and the hearing. That's also part of how she celebrates the one that she loves. She celebrates his own distinctive smell, um, the way we associate smells and can be very vivid in bringing back memories, can't they? You ever have that where you just you smell something outside and it, it brings you immediately to the remembrance of something? Um, I was recently thinking that. I, I went by a, you know, a soccer field that had just been mowed, and it, it just brought me back to playing soccer, just brought me vividly back. And I've been in places where you, you have that same smell, the grass and the dirt, and it, and it brings me back to a baseball field. And that can particularly be the case with people. Uh, both my grandfathers who've gone to be with the Lord um, wore Old Spice. So now if I smell someone wearing Old Spice, I'm immediately thinking of my grandfathers who used to smell like that. Right? We, we can have those smells that are associated not just with things but with people. And that's what she's remembering here. Um, how, how she smells, how that reminds her of his presence. And she thinks about hearing his name, that his name is like oil poured out, uh, like the sweetness of that smell poured out. And it, it draws her to him. And why is that? Well, because his name, that, that poured out, is his character. Um, it stands for who he is, someone who is reliable and responsible and respected and admired in the community. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson gave a wonderful address on marriage at, at this last uh, Ligonier National Conference, and one of the things that he says he always goes over with people in premarital counseling is the question, do you respect your, your spouse-to-be? Do you respect this person? Um, and he said, because if you don't respect the person that you're going to marry, it's not a very good recipe for marriage. There has to be a respect there. Uh, and that's what, that's what she's celebrating. He has a name that's to be respected. Right? Taste, touch, smell, hearing, it all 
blends together in her expression of who this person is uh, that she loves and that she longs for. She loves him and wants everyone else to appreciate about him what she appreciates about him. And that's why that, that voice of the others is important in this passage. Right? This is not someone who is blinded by love. Right? That can happen, can't it? Where people can be blinded by faults in other people. You know, in extreme certain circumstances, we, we can sometimes even say, usually out of the earshot of the person involved, I don't know what she sees in him. I don't know what he sees in her. Right? And sometimes we say, well, you know, every beauty's in the eye of the beholder and, you know, whatever other colloquialism, every foot has a shoe or whatever else you want to say, right? There's a, you could say, oh yeah, I mean, there's a certain sense in which people see what they see. But what the Song of Songs wants us to understand is it's not just she sees something that no one else sees. This respect, this love that she has for this person, the song reflects on the fact that this person is worthy of that love that the other people in the community share that opinion. So we can think of these others here as maybe as the chorus, the people who are gathered around. And what do they say about this one who she is fawning over? Right? If anyone's tempted to say, well, you know, she's just carried away. Or, you know, if you really want to be misogynistic, this is just how young girls are when they're in love. You know, she's a little carried away. Um, But the community comes along and says, no, she's not. She's not to be dismissed in what she says, because what do they see? We will exult and rejoice in you. We will exult in your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. This is not just something that she sees, and she says he's worthy of setting this love and desire on, but they say, you're right, he is. The desire for the man she loves to come and carry her away is a good desire. That he's not just a king in, his own, in her own mind, right? That he is a kingly type of person, seen as being worthy of respect, worthy of her love. That this love that she has for him and that he has for her is to be celebrated. That's what's really being reflected on here. This whole passage is a reminder that love is a powerful emotion that can carry people away, and that sometimes it blinds people to what people, other people are really like. But she is not someone who's been blinded to love someone who's not worthy of her love. That this is a person who is worthy of love. Uh, this is a person who is worthy of her setting that kind of desire and hope on. This is something to be rejoiced and celebrated over. Um, they, they rejoice, that, that language is very strong. We will exult and rejoice in you. That's the way Bi- the Bible puts things when things are really to be celebrated. To exult and rejoice over something is something really to be celebrated. It's the same kind of language Isaiah uses in Isaiah 25.9, talking about the day of the Lord coming, when Isaiah says, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's the same words, exult and rejoice 
in his salvation. It's, it's the highest kind of praise. It's the highest kind of approval and joy. This is not someone blinded or swept away by love. This is someone who is swept away by love. But the desire of her love is a right desire. He's worthy of that kind of love. And what does the text then tell us as we think about these things and as we move on to consider them? Well, it's a reminder that married love is to be celebrated. It is to be rejoiced over. Not just as the married couple who are involved, but the whole covenant community seeing that kind of love. Love rightly fixed on a worthy object should rejoice and celebrate with the person who has that kind of love. Because we acknowledge that these are good things the Lord has made. These are good things the Lord has made both for the welfare of those who are in love and to draw them closer and closer to one another. It's to be rejoiced over. It's to be celebrated as a good gift of our God. Um, We have God's encouragement and command to engage in this kind of intimacy in marriage. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's something good that God has given. The dangers we face are not that these things, physical intimacy included, are bad things. The problem is that we have disordered desires. We have desires that have been disordered disordered by the fall. And so even good desires that God has created as good things can be misdirected, right? Set on the wrong kind of object. Love is a very strong thing. And so directed the wrong direction, it can be a very strong thing for doing damage, if that desire is set on someone other than our spouses, if we're seeking satisfaction where God has not commanded it to be sought. And the extreme cases that the Apostle Paul and others talk about, exchanging men for women or women for men, ignoring that it is to be one man and one woman in a covenant bond. The world is full of disordered desires when it comes to these things. It teaches the wrong thing in so many different ways, it's almost amazing how the world can speak out of both sides of its mouth and be equally wrong both directions. On the one hand, the, the, the world would look at something like this and say, it's no big deal. That desire is no big deal. You can set it on anyone else. You can exercise it on anyone else. And it's really no big deal. It's just kind of part of life. We're all just grown up animals after all. And so it's no big deal. I don't know why you all make such a big deal about this stuff. The world will say that in one direction, and then it will turn around and say, it's the biggest deal in the world. If you don't engage in it, if you don't enter into it, you're sort of missing out on life. And so even the world can't really decide what position it comes down on on these things, which is why wisdom is so necessary, especially in our day. To understand that desires can be disordered, that love can be fixed on inappropriate objects, And that it can be a powerful thing when it's done wrong. That it needs to be in its proper place. In the sense of marriage and where God has put it. Physical intimacy in particular is an important and blessed part of marriage. But it's not the end-all be-all of human existence. Right? Jesus did not live an incomplete human life. Because he was not married. 
Um, and so we have to understand the beauty of how God has created things, but in the proper place that he has given for it. He's given it a blessed place within marriage and no blessed place outside of marriage. It's the only place where it belongs. And one of the reasons God tells us it's important for us to get these ideas about love and marriage right is because of why he has established that marriage relationship to function, right? To to say something of the profound mystery that exists between Christ and his church. That's a really intriguing thing that Paul says in in chapter 5, verse 32 of Ephesians when he talks about the fact that marriage, that relationship, is a profound mystery that shows us Christ and his church, And that's why even if there are those of us who aren't married, we can't just say, well, this book has nothing to say to me. Um, It doesn't have any wisdom to offer me on these things. Uh, we, We can't say that because we all can understand more about the relationship between Christ and his church by meditating on these pages. And that's why as I thought, you know, is this really the most appropriate thing for us to do on the evening of Easter Sunday? I thought on the other sense, what better day is there for us to extol the virtue of Christ who is the husband of his church? What better expression is there of Christ's love for his church that he loved her so much that he laid down his life for her? It's an expression of that love. And just as this, these singers here in verse 4 gather around and say, rightly do they love you. He is worthy of that love. We can look at the church as the bride of Christ and say, He is right to be loved. The church is right to set its love on this Lord who loved us so much that He gave Himself for our sins. And when people might be tempted to say to us in the world, well, that's good for you. It's nice that you love the Lord, but I really don't need the Lord. We'd want to say, no, this is not someone who's blinded by a kind of subjective love. What does the Song of Solomon say? The world recognizes he is worthy of that love. He is worthy of the love and the honor of rejoicing and exulting over what he has done for his bride by his death and his resurrection from the grave. You see how the more we understand the love and the connection between husband and wife, as it's portrayed in the Song of Solomon, the more we will understand something of that mystery of Christ and his bride, the church. But here we can take away, can't we, that that simple notion that it's right to set our love on our Savior. It's right to recognize him as the king who is worthy of serving, uh, the king whose name is his character. Jesus, who came to save us from our sins. The Christ, who is the anointed one, our prophet, our priest, and our king. Our Lord, who has set us free from the tyranny of the devil and made us a people, kingdom and priest to his glory forever. He is worthy to be loved as our king. He is worthy to be served. And the more we know him and know who he is, the more we will understand how worthy he is of our care and of our service. Um, 
it's still a profound mystery, right? There's not a one-for-one one in all these things, but Song of Solomon will help us to understand this Lord who is the perfect husband to his church and that the church is right to love him. And we can sort of end here where we started with this text. This is an expression of love from someone who is separated from the one she loves. And that's the way we exist as a church right now. We are separated from our Lord. We are expressing our love for Him in light of the fact that we are not right now with Him. We reflected a couple of times this morning on what Peter says, although you do not now see Him, you love Him. And you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Um, There's a separation that exists now. Uh, But the Lord is coming. The Lord who rose from the dead is coming again soon in glory. And the more we think about his quality and the reason he's to be loved, the more his people will long for his appearing. The way this woman longs for the reunion with her husband to be. And so we see how these things can help us, can't they? Help us understand better the love the church is to have for her Savior, and that should prompt in us gladness and rejoicing, a kind that no earthly marriage has ever produced. So I'll just end with this quote. This is how the song speaks to us today. Whether we are looking for love, in love, out of love, forsaken and disillusioned by love, or totally confused about the whole subject. Our desire to love and to be loved by a human being is at its core simply a reflection of our desperate need to love and be loved by the God who made us for himself. The song addresses us as a broken people who have disordered desires and shows us a glimpse of what ordered desire looks like, while at the same time reminding us just how hard it is to find love like that in this world. If God's perfect plan for us doesn't involve sex and marriage, which always go together in God's plan, we are not somehow less than human or doomed to live unfulfilled and unsatisfied lives. Equally, if we have failed in our sexual or marital history, what counts far more than our record of unfaithfulness is the faithfulness of our heavenly husband that he has shown to us. Human marriage is a pointer to Christ's love. If we have the reality, then everything else may fade away. Uh, May this text help us to see more clearly the reality of that perfect love that Christ has for his bride and that we are to have for him our Savior. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this book. We thank you for wisdom in how to love. And we know that we need wisdom. We know that the days are evil, that they have always been, but in our day we are concerned by what we see in the world when it comes to love and just how quickly the world seems to be abandoning the standards that you have set. And so, Lord, may we continue to come with hope to the words of the Song of Songs as we think about how you extol the love that you have created in marriage, and may it show us something of that profound mystery about how we are loved as the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. So bless our study, Lord, bless this time that these words might penetrate into our hearts and show us something of the love of our Savior and hear us, for we pray in his name, amen.